Why this fussing and fighting? I want to know. Lord, I want to know. We should really love each other in peace and harmony, sings Bob Marley. We hear at Solutions of Balance, as well as our guest today, Aletha Fields, are asking the same question. Instead of all this fussing and fighting, why aren't we loving each other in peace and harmony? Hi folks, we are Solutions of Balance. Glad you could join us. You are listening to Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational program. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solutions of Violence. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Our guest today is Aletha Fields. Aletha Fields is a community-raised social justice activist, writer, poet, JCPS teacher, an adjunct lecturer at the University of Louisville, a board member of the Louisville Community Grocery, a board member of the Jefferson County Teachers Association, and a fairness campaign past co-coordinator. She is also a licensed and ordained minister. Fields promotes equity and inclusion in all aspects of life for all people, addressing community issues including LBGTQ rights, police brutality, homelessness, immigration rights, mental health access, and equity in education. Welcome to Solutions to Violence, Aletha Fields. Thank you so much for having me. We're happy to have you so much. Thank you. Aletha, let's uh, start with uh, your poetry and your composition. Tell us about your publications. Oh, okay. Well, I've been published uh, abroad, actually, in in England, but most of my work in my uh, writing career has been in poetry, particularly spoken word poetry. Most of that really focuses on issues around justice uh, in the United States. And I'm also concerned about what's going on in Palestine and used to write about what was going on in South Africa under apartheid. And so um, I also uh, talk about love and war and sexuality and old people. I love uh, talking about the old people in my family, my elders. My mother is uh, black and my biological father is Native American, Chiron Hakanataway from Virginia. Oh. I grew up on a reservation. So I, I write a lot about um, that history and what that uh, means to me to have uh, that blood in my veins. And so it really does direct where my energy often goes and how I see the world. So um, most recently, I completed um, a short essay, uh, less than 2,000 words, about um, being um, um, a person of color in Louisville and plantations. And th- that was circled around the pieces uh, with Quaker Oats removing Aunt Jemima from those uh, packages that uh, stereotypical racist packaging. And so I was so glad about that, but delved into uh, my own career um, also as a personal chef. I was a restaurant chef. Um, I'm the only all gay, all black um, chef team in Louisville some years back at the, the uh, opening of the Jazz Factory. Oh, and fascinating. That's wonderful. That's it was. It was wonderful. And I, I talked about what it was like to move into uh, professional chef services and work for 
predominantly white clientele, but how fastidious the plantation culture remains in Louisville. So um, I've written, that was my latest essay. So that'll be published uh, here in probably two or three months by Sarah Van Brooks. So Aletha Fields, tell us about your political activism. Why do you feel it necessary to support political movements? I believe it is incredibly important uh, because most people can express uh, themselves some kind of way. If they are mute, they can express. Um, if they are blind, they can express. If they are vocal, they can express. And so I believe it's very important for me. I grew up with a biblical quote always in mind, to whom much is given, much is required. And so um, when I became aware of what was happening in the United States around sixth grade in the administration of Ronald Reagan, um, I couldn't and didn't have the words to put around it, what I was feeling by what I was seeing, uh, but I knew something was very wrong to me. Um, my parents did not discuss politics. I only found out two months ago what their party affiliation is, not party, but political affiliation is for my parents. And I'm 51. They, my mother just told me. And so uh, we were not swayed one way or the other, but it was the movement of my conscience that it, I embodied it. I knew something inside of me was saying something is very wrong. And so I remember in sixth grade almost writing something about how I felt about uh, President Ronald Reagan and something I had seen and heard um, on the evening news. And so I instinctively knew if I wrote what I was thinking that I would probably get in some kind of trouble. There would be a, a penal you know, consequence for what I had written. I've never forgotten that because I didn't have the language really to express exactly what I was feeling. And now as an adult, I look back on particular things that happened in different administrations and I know why I felt the way that I did. So it's necessary uh, for me to support political movements because the power belongs to the people. It only belongs to authority if we cooperate with them. The power belongs to the people. And so it is important to me uh, to be involved, to be politically active in my community. So I ran for Metro Council this last time in District 4, uh, wanting to make a difference in my community. And I, I'm, um, in a way, I'm not sad that I did not win. Um, what that campaign brought me was an even sharper, clarion clear perspective on what I needed to do for my community as an activist. And I can accomplish way more as an activist than I can as uh, a part of, of a political body. So I'm, I'm glad to be free from the restraints or the necessaries that public office carries with it. Would have been honored to serve, no doubt, and would have, you know, uh, risen to that occasion. But it's important for people, for somebody like me, to have my voice heard in some kind of a way and to show up for justice. I was, I was taught that um, by the great leaders of uh, Louisville's Fairness Campaign when I arrived on the scene here in Louisville. I'm very grateful uh, for uh, people like Jeff Rogers and uh, Ed Kruger, Pam McMichael, Carla Wallace, Diane Moten, Carol Kramer, Bob Furland, people like that did amazing work. Uh, Melanie Walker, who was an educator, Karen Compton, who was an educator, um, they taught me to get right to work, get right to business when they found out I had very strong views. And so 
Um, I was grateful that they, all parts of, of political activism are important, whether you're vacuuming the, the office that you're working out of, licking the envelopes, or standing nose to nose with police officers over pro police brutality. It's important to me. Yeah, we're uh, great friends of Chris Hartman. We've known him for a long time. He's on our show. Actually, uh, my wife taught in the cabbage school system for years, and Chris was one of her, her students back in the day. So we've been friends with the Fairness Campaign for, for years. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. And um, we scored uh, royally to gain Chris Hartman, and I was actually running the Fairness Campaign with Jeff Rogers as co-coordinators when Chris was brought on. And it was just remarkable to be able to attract his talent. Have you participated in uh, any recent civil rights demonstrations? And tell us about your experience with that. I have. Uh, I have been in my home and writing publicly and across social media platforms in order to participate in um, recent civil rights demonstrations. That's very important to me because of uh, COVID. I do not go in large crowds or anything like that, even with masks. I believe that's dangerous for me. And I also take care of a medically fragile relative, so it prevents me from being in large crowds. I don't want to compromise my relative's health or my health. So what else can I do? Well, I can publicly write about um, the number of helicopters and their location over different parts of the city because I can see it from my back deck. I could see the uh, helicopter pilots from my back deck and I would watch them and uh, point at them and I knew they could see me and I could see them and then I would let demonstrators know they're headed your way. They're and also just be a voice of uh, clarity and of information and of safety for people who we're able to be um, out front in, in person. So it's still too dangerous with COVID for me to um, appear there in public, but I have uh, driven in those resides uh, where the, the protest, the, the current uh, protest against the uh, violence that killed Breonna Taylor and the people who committed that violence uh, there in Injustice Square. So I've been very fortunate to be so close. I could hear uh, and report out about the um, sound cannons and the um, other methods of psychological terrorism that I was able to hear uh, that uh, it was interesting. People were live streaming and showing what was going on. I found out later, right, as I was writing about what was going on that I could hear um, knowing what it was. So um, it was really, <laughs> really uh, hairy there for a little bit as the protesters ensued into different parts of the community uh, because we weren't sure what the police response would be. And um, so I've, I've been very fortunate to be a part of that. And all of it has not, of course, been pleasant. Parts of it have been quite hard. And so, you know, it's, it's always a challenge in that way. In this instance, I've not uh, presented myself for arrest because I've not been, you know, in, in person uh, down there. But um, I'm grateful for those who, who are. And so we try to do our best, those of us who cannot be physically present, to support those uh, who are down there uh, financially to the best of our ability also with uh, support affirmation and also um, letting other people know really what's truly happening and um, not letting uh, stories be carried on about 
uh, some un unnecessary adding to, as it were, to say, oh, that's so violent down there and the city's on fire. And indeed, it, it has been violent because police have escalated that, but it's not been at the hands of people who have been down there to um, do the protest work, uh, typically. Well, that is hugely uh, creative uh, participation, being an air traffic control, <laughs> control person. Uh, Absolutely. I didn't go to school for that. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that, but that is too cool. Well, how does your poetry and writing fit into the, uh, the activism? You mentioned a little bit of that. I use the uh, poetry and the writing to uh, sometimes mirror the moment. Um, writing is not uh, cathartic for me necessarily. Writing is uh, work. And so I like to use it to capture particular moments or hear uh, different pieces about it. Uh, in the community and, and let that be reflected in what I've, I've written. So for instance, one of my students wrote uh, over the um, beginning of COVID how um, hard it was for him as a child immigrant to care for two parents who were sick with the virus and also having as a male child to take care of a younger sibling and having basically to run the home by himself, not knowing how to pay a bill, not knowing how to procure food, not knowing how to cook food. And he said, Ms. Fields, I feel like a goat without an owner. I will never forget that. And that line will show up in a piece of poetry somewhere uh, because that, that uh, gave me a cultural closeness to where he was and what that means to him culturally to be a goat without an owner. Uh, my goodness, it, it, it tore right through my heart. I just, I, I almost just lost all of my biscuits from the plate over hearing that because I felt so absolutely helpless to, to assist him. And so sometimes those harder moments show up in my writing um, because it's not always there just to entertain people, mostly not to entertain people, but to um, help people experience what I'm experiencing or others are experiencing given any particular moment in time. So we went to Washington, D.C. one time to protest uh, President Bush's operations overseas and in the Middle East. And, you know, so I got to write about that on the way there and on the way back and in the aftermath to kind of chronicle these pieces for somebody like me one day who may just pick up a book and not wanting to have to examine every single image or every single symbol or whatever. Some of it is quite plain spoken um, to communicate to people a set of feelings or a perspective of, of how I see things or how I am hearing from others that they are seeing things or feeling things or experiencing things. Yeah, do you see your work as a way of resolving conflict or solutions to violence? I've never put that on myself. Um, sometimes the writing itself helps me to come to an understanding of something, even if I don't have resolution. And in that sense, I'm hopeful that it helps other people grasp something or even accept something that we can't control sometimes. So how do I manage those emotions? I never I never will hit a brick with my fist, I wouldn't suppose. You don't know what you'll ever do in a particular moment um, because I have buried a child and I know how the grief can em embody you and what it can do to your psyche. So, uh, but it wouldn't be typical of me, for instance, to hit a brick and just express my anger and breathe deeply and walk away from it. So I, I just hit the paper um, with, with uh, my ink or um, whatever writing instrument I have 
and I exhaust myself um, in, in those particular ways. Sometimes there might be a solution there for someone, um, but it's never my intent purpose necessarily to uh, provide that. I might provide a resting place, uh, perhaps, but I don't know that I've ever intentionally sought a resolution, uh, maybe leaving a lover or something like that, but <laughs> I don't know what the solution to war is. I don't know what the solution to violence is. I wish I did know. But, Aletha, you, you believe that the recent civil rights protests should remain peaceful. Why is that? What I'll say to that is um, I believe I should be peaceful in that. I know that particularly in the civil rights movement. Both of my parents were adults. Uh, my mother was a young adult. My father was a little bit older. You know, it took, according to them, everybody. So some people don't respond to your emotions or your pleas or your demands um, unless you start messing stuff up. So that's not the way that I want to do it. Now, if I were tested when I were 19 or 20 years old, I don't know what I might have done differently. I know I was raised peacefully, but, um, you know, not knowing what I know now to take care of myself emotionally, um, I'd be hopeful that I, did, I wouldn't have uh, been violent. And I don't think I really would have been, but I, I can't say that I know. So I don't fault uh, necessarily those who are, I don't judge them. Uh, the way for me is nonviolence. And so I like to um, assess the power dynamics of any particular situation that's going on and uh, find a way to shift those power dynamics. So I've had to unfortunately do it uh, in my career in education because um, I've had some very unjust principals who um, you know, were, were not uh, leaders of uh, moral fortitude. Um, they had very little courage and so they, they uh, acted out in particular ways. And so I just had to assess the power dynamics there and find a way to shift it. Uh, whether it was confronting them directly about what was going on or um, having some activism uh, with my students and making them very uncomfortable. So it was one way or the other, um, there has to be a shift. And so, you know, for me, uh, the way is not to be violent. Um, I understand why people are, though, I will say that. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it is hard. It is difficult to know what to do when you we, we uh, face the the incidents of in, inciting violence and creating violence and within the peace uh, protest or, or movement. That, that is difficult. All we can do is what we can do. So thank you for that. But yeah. Alisa, you, like Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, you believe protests should involve direct action, action that will force the established order to react. Tell us what you mean by direct action and explain why direct action is sometimes necessary. I believe that uh, direct action can look all kinds of ways. And so I believe it is the fault of revisionist history uh, that time has seen the, the removal of teeth from King's uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy of love and nonviolence. So I've spent a lot of time at the King Center in Atlanta um, and studying King's principles. But a, a, a commitment to love must, by necessity, leave um, people vulnerable in one way. It becomes, perhaps, for some, a strength, and for other, other people, it's, it's a, um, a weakness. But uh, for me, the strategy of, of nonviolent direct action is to effect social change. So nonviolence does not constitute passivity or mollification, but militant commitment to change. And it requires discipline and lots and lots of intentional focus 
on what you want the end to be. What is going to be the end goal? Um, it, it doesn't require for me asking for my rights, but I will act for my rights. So it's not purely just a symbolic movement, um, but it is indeed people power. And so uh, ways that ordinary people organize. And when, when we do organize uh, for nonviolent direct action, uh, we have incredible power. We are the drivers of social change. It is not the politician. It is not the billionaire. It is not the corporation. So uh, it is people power, and that is incredibly important for people to know. So um, nonviolent direct action is, is a, a peaceful means to, to affect social change. It means making connections with people. It means being active in a political moment or in a movement. Um, for me, uh, it can be conscientious objection. It can be tax resistance, absolutely non-compliance with authorities and nonviolent civil disobedience. You see, if we uh, refuse as, as nonviolent direct action activists, if we refuse to cooperate with evil systems, that enables us to confront those in power by withdrawing our absolute cooperation with unjust systems. And they only have power if we cooperate with them, as I said. So um, nonviolent direct action, like I, I told you, it could be you know conscientious objections and things of that nature, um, but it can also mean obstructions, sit-ins. You know that was very common during the civil rights movement and the the women's rights movement and all of our you know uh, strikes. I'm a strong union member and I have always been a union member um, since I've been teaching and then in my other career prior to teaching. And we can do workplace occupation. We can do street blockades. We can do all of that. That is nonviolent direct action. And so it's not a means for keeping people comfortable who are in authority. Nonviolent direct action, uh, for me, it is uh, uh, an essential tool. Um, and then there are many essential tools in nonviolent direct action in almost every major social movement that we have had. Um, Dr. King, uh, his, his philosophy was about the triple evils. And so I, I always think about adding one more since I've um, just started really learning more about the Poor People's Campaign from Pam McMichael. Dr. King's uh, philosophy of the triple evils of poverty, he talked about racism, he talked about militarism, and I also believe that we have to talk about the ecological system, the environment, um, and what is done uh, there. And so we have to take nonviolent direct action to, uh, like I said, to, to shift power and affect social change. So for me to be nonviolent, I don't focus on the other as a thing or as a problem. Nonviolent direct action forces me to be accountable as a person of faith um, by centering my humanity and the humanity of others. Violence, I learned, I was on a, a forum last week, last Saturday, and uh, one man said violence uh, means that often that people are not listening. And so uh, when you're, you're nonviolent, you might be more uh, tempted to listen. And so I enjoy learning as much as I can to be empowered to confront those in power absolutely by withdrawing cooperation uh, with, with unjust systems. And I always want to leave people with the thought that uh, we, 
those authorities only have power if we cooperate with them. So you think about the uh, elders who went to uh, the attorney general's yard on um, <laughs> the 20th of August, and one of them presented herself for arrest. Uh, she didn't tear up anything. She was sitting there uh, knitting. She had on her mask. She, she wasn't abusive to you know, law enforcement, but she refused to cooperate because she believes that Breonna Taylor deserves justice. And she believes that the attorney general should do a more uh, thorough job and make a more concerted effort to get justice for Breonna Taylor. And so she presented herself for arrest uh, without being violent. Yeah, that was Mary Holden. Mm -hmm. And she made a point of, of being visible. That was that was very, uh, uh, very appropriate. It sounds like you've made a lot of what John Lewis calls good trouble. I have been in the company of very good trouble work, uh, makers my whole life. I was fortunate to be the child of two people, uh, my parents, who were very strong thinkers, very strong very strong educators in their own rights. Uh, my mother uh, grew up on a farm and my, my father grew up in a small coal mining town in West Virginia. And so to, to move out of those areas where there was gross uh, economic injustice, along with the fact that they were in the Jim Crow South, uh, my parents were very careful to not quote unquote color life for my sisters and I. So they would share their stories and their feelings about what it was like to be um, hurt by racism in particular and economic inequities in um, Western Kentucky and in West Virginia and coal mining. Um, that, that was hardcore. And so those things resonated with me uh, whenever my parents would share their stories. They never ever condemned a particular group of people. Now they might say, you know, an individual did this. So my father was a combat veteran twice in Vietnam, uh, drafted that way. And so he was uh, on the front lines there and uh, suffered tremendous uh, psychological impact by what he was seeing and experiencing on behalf of the United States government sponsored by the government. And so to come back from fighting in a jungle and being under constant attack in a place where, you know, I believe the American uh, government never should have been. Um, my father came back to the United States and in his uniform on a bus, got off the bus and he was spit upon and people, you know, chased him to try to uh, beat him up for um, wearing that uniform, knowing that he had just come back from Vietnam um, so there were people who were unhappy with him for fighting in Vietnam. And then there were people who were unhappy with him because of the color of his skin. But he had just gone through all of that. So even people who are uh, vitriol racist, rabbit racist right now can say what they want to say uh, because he long ago defended their right to, to be able to do so or swore to defend that right um, in this country and in other countries as well. So I um, was very fortunate to have parents who took the time to instill in me uh, a conscience. Um, so in 10th grade, when I refused to stand for the pledge in my small high school, uh, well, my high school wasn't small, but in my small town, uh, that was very disruptive. And so my father asked me why. And I told him what I thought about 
what I was learning about what the United States was doing. And so that was my first protest that I'm, I can recall. And so my father told me, you know, but uh, I, I do salute that flag because I fought for it. So while it didn't uh, make me uh, want to stand for the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance collectively with my peers, later I began to honor that flag for what my father went through because it is only what it is because of his participation in particular things. And it wasn't about his being a, a combat veteran um, against his wishes. What it was, was the fact that my father had a tremendous amount of integrity and respect for his own journey um, and his own personage, his own moral capacity, even after having been subjected to the likes of a war time experience twice over. You know, he missed his grandmother's funeral who raised him uh, because the bombs uh, in, at the Saigon airport uh, were happening right as he was about to fly out. So, you know, he suffered tremendous loss, but what it meant to him. So that was the teaching that I got. He asked me why he didn't say you will do it because where I come from, if your parents say you have to do it, you have to do it. So if he had said you have to stand, I would have been angry about standing, but I would have stood in order to be a compliant child, a respectful child to my parents by obeying them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, my father gave me the choice gave me the choice. So I, I'd rather at that time um, salute Ozzy Osbourne, and that's what I did. So <laughs> that's who I was as a teenager. So that, that was uh, powerful for me to, to have those, those parents um, and my mother also, um, you know, sharing the stories of growing up in, in the Jim Crow South. Um, they left the decisions in my hands, you know, but they didn't create a moral dilemma for me. Like you're wrong if you feel this way, you're right if you feel this way. They never created a uh, dilemma for my morals. They made me substantiate my stance and that was very powerful. It is, it is very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So Alita, you mentioned that people define violence in different ways besides just physical violence. So there are some who define violence as injustice, an unfair economic system, suppression, dire poverty. All of those are kinds of violence. Oh, I absolutely agree. Oh, do I ever agree. Um, the fact that I teach at a school um, that is almost 100% at or below what they call the federal poverty line is violent. Redlining neighborhoods is violent. Food injustice is violent. Food apartheid is violent. And all of that exists right here in Louisville. Oppression, racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, it is all violence. Now, there are people who, you know, use the call for nonviolence as a way to manipulate protesters to comply without ever addressing their grievances. So it's another attempt to voice to muzzle the voiceless or those that they don't consider having a valuable about valuable voice or an equitable voice. Um, all of that is violent. The psychological manipulation is violent. Um, what they, as a government, uh, what the government chooses to serve children in public schools, that food uh, in and of itself, the choices are violent. They're saying this is all you're good for. So if the government has enough money to, to rock it out in, in, in the North Sea with China or wherever, 
and create um, a system that sustains violence uh, and terrorism against other countries alongside uh, violence and terrorism um, inside of this country. There, there has to be room for protest. Those things are unconscionable to me. I don't understand why it has to be that way. Um, and people are able to live with themselves with that happening. So it's a, a matter of um, those, those who have and those who have not. And I think it's a horrible uh, equation for sustainable life in the United States. Condition of public school, Shawnee High School having a condemned third floor for over 30 years in Western Louisville. Of course, it's in West Louisville. A condemned floor. Children have been peopling that building since that floor was condemned. Why is that inhabitable? That would never happen at Ballard High School. Absolutely. Absolutely true. How do we correct things like that? What's the uh, good trouble we can <laughs> create? <laughs> oh, we've got to create the good trouble. We've got to be a part of it, and we've got to show up even stronger um, than we ever have before. I believe as a community, it requires those of us who are able to be ever vigilant about what is going on in our communities and in our country. Nonviolent direct action can create what I call decision dilemmas for authorities. So the attorney general has um, Mary on, her, on his front yard knitting. Uh, so do you arrest the grandma, one of the nation, or do you let her stay? That's a decision dilemma for someone in authority. Nobody of good conscience is going to agree that you should arrest a, a grandma who is, who is not causing any threat or harm. <laughs> so you, you, <laughs> you're going to arrest a grandma. Who does that? So you, you create decision dilemmas for authorities. Nonviolent direct action, when we show up that way, we challenge unjust behavior and power dynamics by using methods of protest, by using methods of non-cooperation and intervention without injurious force and without the use or threat of force, injurious force. And so we know from watching live streamers and from the activists themselves and ordinary citizens, I mean, there was a principal and, and a, a school teacher from Jefferson County Public Schools who were arrested. They didn't do anything wrong, but they showed up to do nonviolent direct action, to not cooperate with the authorities. They were not using or, or threatening to use injurious force. So, um, but nonviolent direct action shines a light on a particular injustice and it makes it harder for authorities to ignore. So the attorney general of the Commonwealth of Kentucky gets the right on his resume. Yes, I had a granny arrested. Uh, wow, who are you gonna tell that to? Um, and who, who really respects that? Um, who who of, of any kind of moral aptitude respects someone who is arresting a granny? Um, you know, it's such a great such a great example because it it requires you're going to see a, a policeman go in and, and use his club on a grandma. You know, so it 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 creates the uh, behavior of authority to treat nonviolence uh, respectfully. Absolutely. But, you know, um, during the civil rights movement and, and during these uprisings against the 
murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and what happened to Rodney King back in 92, April of 92, uh, 1992, and what happens down here at Injustice Square. Um, there have been senior citizens who have been grossly abused by the police. You look through the civil rights movement, they beat up Fannie Lou Hamer, and they uh, mishandled uh, Rosa Parks and uh, folks like that. And they have been handled, you know, they would take a Southern preacher like Dr. King, but because he had a big voice and uh, those folks were intimidated by someone who graduated from Harvard um, and, and to be black and graduate from Harvard would, would be a double insult for a racist. And so then you have, you have people who are willing to use physical force, injurious force to muzzle the people that they think should not cause any trouble. For us, it is good trouble, but I believe that we have to remain vigilant and we have to continue to show up in every capacity that we can. We have to continue to vote, those of us who are eligible to vote, and those of us who want to use our vote to represent people who cannot vote. So for instance, um, many of the students I have served over 22 years, unfortunately, have been children who grew up in ex extreme poverty and facing uh, super oppression is what I call it. Because if you have to endure oppression as a child, that's a whole nother angle. But um, nobody has taken that by, you know, that bull by the horn, so to speak, and and uh, just ridden it until it, it rests, you know. So have the, the lion and the lamb lying together. That hasn't happened in the United States. And you know, people, Barack Obama didn't do it, but, uh, you know, President Trump isn't going to do it either. So they're, they're not trying to be held accountable for those pieces of social justice. But it is time for us to remain ever vigilant, to, to educate ourselves, to talk to one another and pull out perspective. You know, listening, it's one of those things we forget. It's really very powerful, but it's very hard to do. It is for me, and I assume it is for others. We can see that <laughs> a lot, but it can be it can be so useful and calming and uh, giving that respect to the other person, even if we don't agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Alita, you agree with the current civil rights demonstrations that are going on in Louisville, even though maybe your your neighbor does not. What's the justification for the civil rights demonstrations that are now going on in Louisville and all across the country in support of justice for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd? You know, I don't know what different activist uh, justifications are. Mine is uh, just to be as vocal as I can and present in as many ways as possible um, to inform and because there are a lot of people who trust my opinion, former students, their parents, my friends across the world, my family members, my, my little niece who's in high school, my, my nephew who's serving um, in the military. Uh, they're watching what I'm saying. I have to be responsible with what I'm reporting out, what, how I, I handle what I'm seeing. Sometimes it means taking a step back Sometimes it means um, hyping it up right in that moment to say, you know, I'm really angry about this. I don't like this piece right here. So I, I have to do that sometimes. 
Uh, my justification for that is uh, it has to be done. We have to have all kinds of voices. And sometimes people push back and uh, things that I, I have uh, said or, you know, um, on a radio interview or what have you. And, uh, you know, I don't mind that so much um, at all. It takes all of us some push and pull to get it right. Establishing a more just economic system, one that is fair to all, both people of color and, and, uh, and, and others, well, that's going to require policy change. How do we get from demonstrating to that actual policy change? What will that policy change require? Will it be coalition building? If it is, how do we build a coalition? Where do we, go, where do we start? I believe coalition building is super powerful. I learned that from the fairness campaign when uh, I was being raised by them as an activist. What I learned was that even though every organization that we were being with, that we kept showing up for and they were showing up for us, that we had to build reciprocal relationship. And so that meant that we show up for you, you show up for us. And so um, we, we built coalitions, sometimes across lines that people would say are lines of difference. And, and oftentimes we had way more in common than we had in our areas of difference. And so I believe coalition building is super powerful. I believe that when, let's say, the Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Oppression um, has a training, we as the Fairness Campaign, uh, several of us as leaders and members, would go to a Kentucky Alliance training because we wanted to learn what it was that they were teaching and how they were strategizing and organizing and they would come and do the same with us. And so if uh, the Kentucky Alliance had an action that they were doing, they would let us know at the fairness campaign and we would reach out to folks and we would all show up together. So, you know, it's, I, I think it's very important because um, I said this last week in, in a forum, I said, you know, often the masses, uh, people will often say, well, those people, you know, a whole bunch of them don't have very much money or very much education or all of that. Um, nobody really needs that to, in, to make change. What you do need is the way that is valuable to you to show up for the work. That's what I do believe that people need. And so what is on uh, who and what folks believe is on the bottom is what's holding up the top. I always remember, especially as a union member, that those bosses up top, they can do nothing without those of us that they believe are on the bottom. I never forget that. I never, ever forget that. Uh, my principal, can he can write me up. He can recommend me for termination or anything like that. But I also know that he can't run that school without the majority of us teachers there. And so we have to unite and stick together and, um, we have to, to work on our differences if they seek to weaken us or to divide us apart. And what are the places of commonality where we can build strength in numbers? And there is strength in numbers. I, I still to this day believe that that's why so many assassinations occurred within the civil rights movement because those leaders were often starting to help groups build powerful coalitions. And so that was, you know, getting uh, poor white folks, Dr. King, moving folks, you know, 
over into, uh, you know, workers' rights and things like that. It wasn't just a black thing. It didn't just stay that way. And so Dr. King started to grab up folks who were interested in their rights being protected also. He began to speak against the Vietnam War and things like that. You had folks like Muhammad Ali uh, who said, I'm, I'm not going to uh, go over there and fight for anything. Uh, I've already been in prison for 400 years right here in this country. So it's like, you know, he took a stand and that meant something to people. You know, he lost a year of his career in, in professional boxing, Muhammad Ali did, but what he did gain was a respect from people who believed what he believed in forming powerful coalitions with other people. And of course, he turned into one of the most dynamic humanitarians of, of this century or last, you know. So um, I'm, I'm so glad that we can impact the economic system. We can boycott. Uh, we, we can make it uncomfortable. We can withdraw our money and our presence. We can withdraw our support uh, publicly, vocally. There are all kinds of businesses that are, are seeing the uh, output uh, of our input. <laughs> I'll say that much. And uh, so there are people who, who are listening and we are making change little by little. People may not think that it is a change um, that is, is uh, nothing comes fast. So the wheels of justice I learned move very, very slowly. That was very frustrating to me <laughs> as a new activist, but um, economic, uh, a just economic system, it needs to be fair for everybody and it does require a policy change. And so the demonstrations uh, when people uh, who think of themselves at the top uh, want to, to set, uh, sit down and, and uh, have a conversation uh, with those of us who want change, things will begin to shift because it is always about keeping our, our teeth on uh, into the movement. <laughs> you know, don't take the teeth out of our philosophy. Uh, of uh, of love and nonviolence, yeah, but keep them keep them in there. Not to bite folks as we might want to sometimes, but to say, you know, we're here. We're not going to stop. We're not going anywhere until this changes. So, Alita Fields, let's let's talk about that uh, injustice for a minute. A common refrain that comes from white conservatives is that blacks linger in poverty because they're lazy. They suffer from a a character flaw, but the science paints a much different picture. For example, a study conducted by Northwestern University, Harvard, and the Institute of Social Research in Norway and published in the Intelligentsia, penned by Eric Levitz, demonstrates that, quote, employers are still discriminating against African-American job applicants like it was 1989, end quote. Some, quote, 24 studies together representing more than 54,000 applications and submitted for more than 25,000 job openings. White applicants received, on average, 36% more callbacks than equally qualified African Americans. This was an extensive study published in the Intelligentsia in September 2017, and it has revealed yet another level of violence against minorities. So getting the message out that American economic system is grossly unfair to people of color, should that be part of the current civil rights movement? If so, how does the movement go about informing the American populace? The civil rights movement has captured the spotlight. Where do we go from here? Well, that is, um, that's the whole truth there. <laughs> what, you, what you stated, uh, black folks have known that. 
our whole existence in this country. We know that we don't often get paid as much as someone else. Um, you can see, even in the public school system, teachers that were my student teachers, how quickly the principal will promote them to department chair and not me, but I'm the one that trained that teacher, you understand? So I, I watched these things. I watched my uh, father work for a, a, a powerful law firm here in, in Louisville. And, um, you know, once he, he um, measured his education up against some of the, the, um, the white employees that were also in that law firm, they chose to replace him because they could get two, two white people for the cost of, of one of him, even though he had more experience. And watching that happen over and over again to to my parents, to my own uh, children in particular, and and to myself. So it is it is the truth, and we we have known that for a long time. This is no new news. Um, and so the economic system has never been meant for people of color to succeed. So conservative whites are the first to push back on reparations, for instance, and they know doggone well, this country wouldn't be anywhere near what it is without black labor. And the reason black labor was so powerful and at the same time so detestable to white people at that time, and even some now, um, is because it was based solely on race. And that's what makes enslavement in America unique compared to other places, even though race was a big deal in uh, many other places like the Caribbean and, you know, places like that, Brazil and things, uh, certainly and most notably in the United States of America. So um, <laughs> if, if Black people were lazy, um, you know, we could just burn it all down instead of, of making it better. <laughs> so there's no character flaw uh, inherent uh, because of color of someone's skin now uh, that's that old eugenics mess and that's that's where it belongs flush straight down the toilet the sad part is is that there are still people who do believe that way um, they believe that black people are lazy and they know that's not true um, they believe that there's a character flaw they know that's not true even the the, the slave owners uh, knew that wasn't true if you ever read a a slave ad from that time you will see the personification of the enslaved person who had become a fugitive, for instance, a, a young woman named Mindy who, who got away, she became a fugitive and they said, oh, she's even tempered. Well, um, I don't know if you consider, you know, a puppy even tempered or a cow even tempered, but certainly a human being, we're most often going to refer to the, using use those, those terms to refer to a human being. And so they knew they were dealing with humans, but they could not uh, for their conscience, like James Madison, he wrote some really strong contradictory material about um, those people that he had, had enslaved, you know, so we, we get the three-fifths compromise out of some of that dumb stuff, um, but it was inherently dangerous, and it was the hardening of the moral content of white slaveholders and their sympathizers. Yeah. Yeah. These are so many realities that, that, that we as members of the white fragility uh, need to hear again and again and again. So thank you for that. What are your thoughts on policy changes that are necessary right now, like uh, police reform, health care, yeah, yeah. immigration? Um, police reform is a must. The militarization of the police force has been one of the most horrific movements that I have seen in American society in a long time. Uh, racism, I believe, will always be with us. It's just one of those things um, that the Bible talks about, Don Jesus saying that uh, the poor will be with you always. 
And people say, oh, you know, Jesus wanted people to be poor. No, 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 no. He's, he said, he's saying that because in context, the system, the way it was set up in that society at the time, the poor would always be with them because of the way the system was set up, how unjust the system was. So whether I was a Christian or not, I would still be down with Jesus Christ's teachings because of the nonviolent direct action. And occasionally Jesus did, you know, he did turn over a table in the temple and and scourged folks, you know, that righteous indignation. So he wasn't always nonviolent um, and, and, and you know, died a particularly violent death. And so um, those, those components um, are with us in this culture, in this society in America. Racism will always be with us. But at the same time, how do we want to redress that and its impact in American society? So people say, oh, well, black people can be racist, and that's a lie. You can't be racist and be a black person in the United States. You can have biases, you can have prejudices, you can be a bigot, you can be all of that and be a person of color in the United States, but you can't be a racist, and this is why. Uh, let's say that, uh, um, I, let's say I don't, I don't like Jim, and um, I, I don't want Jim living on the same street as me. Um, and so I, my opinion about that and my feelings about Jim living on my street because I think his hair is too long, we'll make very light of it. Let's, I think his hair is too long. Um, that's not going to stop Jim from getting a job because of how I feel about him. And even if I make every other person of color in the neighborhood mad at Jim because his hair is too long, uh, Jim is not going to lose a job because the, there's no, no law that's going to prevent him from living somewhere because his hair is too long. Now, so people of color in this country, we, we can't, um, by our opinions, impact where a white person lives. We can't impact whether a white person gets a job or a bank loan. We can't redline white people uh, institutionally, but white people can do those things um, to people of color in the United States. So racism is, is power plus prejudice. And so we, we, as people of color in this country, don't have that kind of power. Now, at the same time, um, I also believe that it, you know, it is very scary for racists. I heard a teacher say this the other day in a, in a, a conversation. She said, well, I'm scared that the, the black kids are going to feel emboldened by these civil rights protests. And I was horrified <laughs> to hear that come from somebody that I knew. I was horrified. Oh, I was, my blood was boiling. My blood pressure shot through the roof when I heard that. It did, it did, it did, I admit it. But at the same time, I have to be willing to have a certain kind of conversation with her to say, you know, um, you know that, that could cause some issues down the line, whether she writes referrals for Black children because she thinks they feel emboldened and so their suspension rates go higher, things like that. We have to be willing to address those issues inside of our culture and uh, be willing to not just call out people or things like that. I, I don't think call out culture um, really gets very much done. I think you get more enemies with that. But at the same time, um, recognizing that we will always have these issues to contend with in this country, um, as long as it stands the way that it does. But we've got to find ways to um, work better and to better capture the best spirit of, of our humanity toward um, one another. I'm sure I did not answer your question, but <laughs> I got there some kind of way. Okay, Aletha Fields, we're, we're out of time here. So if our listeners are interested in participating in a peaceful organization that are trying to raise awareness about injustice, where might they look? 
Oh, there are some beautiful places in Louisville to look uh, if folks want to participate in peaceful organizations that are trying to raise awareness about injustice. So the Fellowship of Reconciliation, of course, uh, there's some beautiful, beautiful people who have worked for many, many years there. Peace Education is another place. LSURJ, L-S-U-R-J, Louisville Showing Up for Racial Justice. TheBailProject.org, that's a very uh, great organization that um, help people be reconciled with their, their families and, um, you know, uh, against the, the bail system that's in the United States. Uh, we have the Fairness Campaign. We have the Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Oppression. Um, so those are some starter places where I would send anybody, people inside of those organizations. They don't have to be perfect, but they are perfect for this moment. And they have been for a long time um, answering the, the right questions, um, asking the right questions and seeking equitable answers. And also the poor people's camp. Also the uh, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth KAC. Uh, that's another great organization where people can get involved. And the Sierra Club. But we, we have so much more to cover, Alicia. We need to discuss and share a lot more with our audience and, and friends and neighbors. We really appreciate all your your contributions today. I really appreciate this forum, this opportunity, and the tremendous work that you all are doing um, to bring in a variety of speakers um, that are speaking to the core issues in our community. So thank you so much for having me. It's an, an immense honor to be here. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, our program will be repeated Tuesday, September 1st at 8 a.m. and again Wednesday at se September 2nd at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Broadcast Schedule. Until next time, we are Jamie McMillan and Jump Johnson, your hosts for Solutions to Violence. We leave you now with one last thought. Change, to me, is not about what one individual does. It's about what we all do together when we join together and understand that none of us is expendable and that we can make the change we need. A quote from Louisville's own Carla Wallace. Thanks for listening.